0: Am I working? Is it working? Okay, good. Well, we're going to try a new thing. Um, Rather than me constantly turning my back to write on the board, or actually more likely forgetting to write anything on the board, um, we're going to go into the 21st century but we'll see if Reg Larkin can go into the 21st century. That's what we'll really find out. Excellent. Is it supposed to be that tiny? Okay. I don't know whether you guys can read it or not. Okay, I'll do two lines it. Okay. You may not be able to read it. Wow, I need to change location, I think. I need to get away from the speaker. Um, Can you read the title of the sermon there? Okay, I'm impressed. I'm right up here and I can't read it, but... That's a different matter. I, every now and then I feel compelled to do this, and I wish I didn't, but I'm going to do it one more time. Um, I don't know who all was sitting in that back corner. Uh, several people were. I have to apologize uh, because um, some of the songs this morning, I really wanted to sing vigorously and out loud, and people usually suffer when that happens. Uh, I, I have, you know, it's like the broken clock that hits the correct time twice a day. Um, I hit the right note maybe even three or four times a day. So uh, my apologies if I was disruptive for anybody else's uh, worship time back there. Well, we're going to continue with Second Peter. And as we've launched into the end of Second Peter, uh, we have launched from there... Into the uh, armor of God. So if you will turn to Ephesians chapter 6, we will continue there. And as we've been looking at this, this armor, we're now at verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And as we've been talking about, this is not just a formula, this is not just a series of words we say, these are truths that we're, we're agreeing with God, and what we're doing is we're placing our mind and our hearts and our spirits, our words, our actions, we're putting our faith proactively in agreement with the truths that are represented in each part of this armor. And so we're going to look at the helmet of salvation uh, this morning, and there's, Two things about this helmet and recognizing that this is protection for our mind, which shouldn't be too surprising. Everything about the armor is anchored in truth. Everything in the armor is anchored in some revelation of what God has accomplished for us in Christ or through Christ. And this recognition that he's saying, if you are putting on the right protection, the truth of your salvation, this is going to protect you, protect your thinking, protect your attitudes, protect your expectations, predict, I mean, protect you in terms of what you predict for your future, protect you in terms of how you interpret and understand the effect of your past. This helmet will be true protection for your mind. So, for, for almost all of you, for almost all of you who are in this room, as far as I know, the vast majority have already put their faith in Jesus Christ. If you have already put your faith in Jesus Christ, then this gets to be protective review. So not an invitation, but protective review of, do I really put this helmet on on a day-to-day basis? I think I asked this a few weeks ago. um, How many people here... So, Actually, I'll ask it again. So this is an actual raise your hand. How many people here who have put your faith in Jesus Christ have ever gone through a moment of doubt, wondering if you were really saved? Okay. That's a lot of hands. That recognition, that's the exposure of our need for this helmet. The very fact that all those hands went up is our evidence. Boy, do I need to get really good at wearing this helmet. Boy, do I need to get stronger and stronger and clearer and clearer of what it means I'm putting on. So again, for for most of us as believers, this may be very much a review of the realities of salvation, but I hope you stick with the process. And I, again, I hope you stick with the process for strengthening your thought life and that you stick with the process for strengthening your celebration of what's true and that you stick with the process of this reviewing these truths for the purpose of planning. I want to I go to those truths the next time the enemy is trying to disqualify me in my role as a son or daughter of God. I want to go to those truths the next time the enemy tries to get me to turn around and measure me for my salvation rather than measure the finished work of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's go into it. And there's a lot of different ways to... that we could uh, look at this, but I want to look at two specific areas or two specific applications of these truths Every now and then, I'm going to check and just make sure that my, my print is working. Um, good. Is this better than the board? Okay. Good. What was that? Okay. Then we're Good. And, and this recognition of destiny and identity, of recognizing there are now some things about knowing my destiny accomplished through this salvation that will change the way I think or should change the way I think and face life. And then there are things about this salvation that radically should transform our sense of identity, who we believe ourselves to be. So let's take a, a quick look. And let's start with John. John. Let's go through this. Again, I'm going to hit several passages that I know most of you are very familiar with. Please don't allow familiarity to glaze your eyes over that we would pay attention to what we're reviewing together here. So in verse, I'm sorry, in chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has come to him in the night. Uh, He's a leader. He's part of the Sanhedrin. He has standing in, in the culture. Uh, He's a man who's looked up to as a teacher. And he's coming to Jesus at night out of embarrassment, out of a certain degree of shame, that the others will not accept and understand and approve of the fact that I'm coming to Jesus, this upstart, that I'm coming to him for truth and wisdom. But Nicodemus was at least smart enough to know that's the man I need to be talking to. And we know that that later after Jesus' death and and, uh, the the outcome of Jesus' ministry at the cross, that Nicodemus was finally ready to publicly identify himself as a disciple of Jesus. But as Jesus is sharing with him uh, in verse 14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And I want to pause there for just a second. The the beauty of of this simplicity and and these these words, this principle is repeated over and over and over and over again in the New Testament. God really is saying anybody is welcome. Everybody is invited. So we could look at the worst person, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but. We could look at the worst person and we might even think there is no way in the world that person's ever going to become a Christian. And what God is really trying to get in terms of his heart and thinking into our hearts and thinking is, but God wants them to. God loves them enough that no matter what horrible things I'm seeing, the heart of Jesus Christ is, I want that to be my son or daughter too and and to recognize that even if i see them in just deep hostility to the gospel where they're they are taking joy in tearing down christianity that was paul so nobody is outside the veil of this grace nobody is outside the veil of this offering so one of the challenges for us as believers and we'll get to this later is the recognition i want to make sure that my heart is praying for and seeking the salvation of others around me, even if I would predict they never will. But I'm taking this, whoever, I'm taking it seriously as the heart of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I've said this repeatedly, but I'm going to say it again. He doesn't say whoever believes in him gets some kind of probationary ticket for eternal life. And then if 30 years from now, or 40 years from now, or or 70 years from now, you have qualified yourself, then I'll get that ticket punched and you can come in. He's saying at the very moment of faith, you have received eternal life. That is hard to conceive of. But again, whether it's Paul persecuting Christians, whether it's thieves or murderers, or whether it's just scum like you and me, that God is saying, as soon as you put your faith in Jesus Christ, all of your sin has been dealt with and you are in for eternity. Not probation, not maybe, you're in. So if at that point of faith, so many of you I know accepted Jesus Christ when you were children some of you in adulthood, some of you very recently, and yet whether, whether it was at a child or whether it was recent, God's saying, the second your heart chose trust in my son's death on the cross, you became eternal. You became eternal. And again, if we're going to put on this helmet, I get to recognize there may be things I think, things I grew up believing or things that other people believe that they've imposed on me. And I get, to impose, I get to oppose every one of those thoughts that would sabotage the strength of this confidence. If I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I am already eternal. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I was just reading uh, just this past week, in fact, I was reading somebody who has um, made it their business to attack attack Christianity. And one of the things this person said, he says, Christians never want to talk about this, but... Why would a God who claims to be a God of love send people to hell? And and it was being presented like, man, that's just absolute shut down argument. Now we don't have to believe in God at all because a God of love would never do that. And over and over again in Scripture, God's presenting this truth. God is not sending people to hell. God is offering every man, woman, and child on the planet, He is offering them... Eternal love relationship with Him. Every man, woman, and child is being offered perfect forgiveness. Perfect forgiveness. So when God says He is not willing that any should perish, that's the heart of God, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. I don't want anybody going to hell. And what Jesus is saying here is God doesn't send anybody to hell. Everyone who ends up there is because they, they were offered eternity and they said no to it. That's terrifying and heartbreaking. But we need to recognize that's, that's, the in a sense, the majestic and terrifying power of free will. Not total free will. We just have free will within the bounds that this sovereign God has decreed. And this is one of the ways he's decreed. Say yes or say no to my offer. And I will take your yes, and I will instantly do miraculous things for you. I will rescue you from the hell that you deserve. I will cleanse you and forgive you of all your sin. We sang that already. I told Stephen as, as worship with songs was over, I said, we, I can go home now because we've already done the sermon. If you were listening as we sang those songs, you were already practicing the helmet of salvation. And that it's not just that we're forgiven, it's that we're cleansed. We're going to keep looking at that through this. We're clean before God. Not because we deserve it, not because we've measured up, because that's what the death of Jesus Christ accomplishes for us. And so that that beauty that God is saying in this passage, I don't want anybody going to hell. I'm inviting everyone, whosoever will, whoever believes in my son can come in. And go over to to Romans chapter 10. I will also say this. No signal. Well, let's continue while the electronics are being attended to. In Romans 10, and let's start in verse 8. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, and here's this, same word again, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love the clarity and the beauty of language that God chooses to use so often in scripture. And some of his strongest, clearest language is about the results of putting our faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's not saying if you're good enough, you will be saved. He's not saying if you join the right church or go to the right group or give the right amount of money. He's not saying if you measure up in someone else's eyes or you measure up in your own eyes. He's saying one thing. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, that the lordship of Jesus Christ and the seal of God's approval over his sacrifice that was evidenced through the resurrection. So actually, Scripture says this. We won't go into it too much right now. But the recognition that if there was no resurrection, we would not have the prophetic seal that Jesus was the Messiah who died for our sins. So Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus was even born, gave an incredible prophetic picture of what Jesus' death was going to accomplish. That he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities. And that by crushing his spirit with the wrath that we deserved, God would purchase for us forgiveness. And so that substitute, substitutionary death was the point of Jesus coming to the planet. Prophet after prophet after prophet could have taught everything that Jesus taught. Jesus didn't have to come to the planet to teach more stuff. Jesus came to the planet because He was the only one who was righteous and pure, walked with the Father sinlessly so that rather than dying for His own sin, He could die for my sin. And Isaiah predicts that 700 years ahead of time. And now this passage is saying anybody who recognized that that Messiah who was prophesied to come die for our sin was also prophesied to rise from the dead as the father's seal of approval on his sacrifice. And so when I believe in Jesus, I cannot just say, you know what? I believe in Jesus' teachings. Uh, I think he, he was a man of God, or I might even think he was the son of God. And he came and he taught a lot of really good stuff. And I would still be doomed to hell if that was all I believe. Because what I'm being asked to believe in is that his death accomplished salvation. And now I'm being asked to believe that the father put the stamp of approval through resurrection. And now I'm asked to choose that I surrender my life to his lordship. That's an ongoing battle. So show of hands again. How many people here have uh, completely uh, finished the process of making Jesus Lord of every moment, every choice, every decision? And there are no hands. Okay. That just shows that I have a room full of honest people. Uh, We're not finished growing, but that the heart choice has been made. The heart choice has been made that I'm confessing him and I'm surrendering my heart to keep growing where more and more I look to Jesus Christ to be the king of my next choice, to be Lord over the next words out of my mouth, to be in charge of how I treat my friends, my family, my husband, my wife, my brothers, my sisters, my parents, my children, that there is a living, integrated partnership with this living Jesus Christ that means I can't do this alone. I'm choosing you to be Lord of this moment. And so that that recognition of who he is, what he accomplished, and who he will now be for me. He's saying, you will be saved. Is that is that there? Okay. Just got to tap it every now and then. Yeah. I just need to change that setting. Okay. So that passage is real clear, but this is another passage that you're very familiar with. Let's go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9. How many people here? Oh, no, I don't need to ask for a raising of hands. If you have not memorized this passage, please memorize this passage. There, were, there will be so many moments when God gives you reassurance through this passage or equips you to offer a promise of help to someone else who's struggling. And I would say, particularly someone who's struggling to measure up. Because this clarifies that that will not be the process. So here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And and the reason I, I wanted to add this particular passage, is it's not simply, I put my faith in Jesus Christ... And he's my 10% or my 50% or my 90% salvation, and now I get to do the other 90% or the other 10%. That my entire salvation is accomplished by Jesus Christ, and my works do not add to salvation. Let me say that one more time. If I've really put my faith in Jesus Christ, he is my complete salvation, and my works do not add anything. To my salvation. There is something in the human heart that wants legalism. There is something in the human heart that wants to think I earned it. And, and I know I shared this, but when I was really trapped, um, still very much immersed in the occult, and, and I knew that God was, was wanting me to repent of that and turn to him, and I can still remember almost having like an all night long argument with God, a real argument with God, of asking to give me a task, give me a journey, give me a project, give me, give me a, what's that thing called in old myths and legends? A quest. Yes, quest. Who who, who did that? Okay, thank you. A quest. Give me something to, to impress you with that you'll go, well, well done, Reg, come on in. And even though it was not an out loud conversation, I very much had the strong sense of God constantly saying, that's not how this works. You're going to have to trust me completely. And, and he did, by the way, rescue me from all that. But that recognition that we want to add some legalism. There is something so twisted in the human heart that we want credit for our salvation. And even after we're believers, so much in the New Testament is written that we have to keep fighting that tendency. That you and I are not a little more saved after we've cleaned up our act. And I mean miraculously cleaned up our act, where God has really done wonderful things in our life. That we will still be 100% saved by the death of Jesus Christ. And our our works matter to God. That's reward for eternity. Everything we do, Jesus said, you can't even give a cup of water in my name without it receiving eternal reward. There, There is a great, incredible outpouring of God's delight for all the choices we keep growing in under his lordship. But they didn't save us. They don't add to our saving. We're just saved or we're not. And that recognition that this passage makes it real clear, works are not in the equation for salvation. They are definitely important for reward, not in the equation for salvation. I'm going to add another passage here. Maybe. Let's go to Colossians 2. And I have really uh, come to really love this passage because of just the the beauty of what it presents. But Colossians 2, let's see, where's a good place to begin? Let's start in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And so again, he's putting the focus on the cross, that that death is where he purchased our forgiveness. But he does it with this beautiful picture that you and I owe God horribly for our sin. That certificate of debt was the record of everything I owe God for my sin. But it was not It was no longer on my account. It was nailed to Jesus. And that you and I get to learn to rejoice in that when the accuser comes to you as a believer and tries to make you doubt your salvation. And sometimes he'll make you doubt it because you don't feel like you're passionate enough. Sometimes to doubt it because you've sinned and you know you've sinned. There may be a multitude of ways that the accuser comes against you And part of your your helmet, part of you putting on the helmet, part of me putting on the helmet at that moment of doubt is to recognize, wait a minute, have I put my faith in Jesus dying on the cross for my sins? Then I am secure. My certificate of debt. Everything I'm looking on that I think this might disqualify me, I get to agree with God. Father, that thing is not on my account. I don't know if you ever used that phrase, but I would encourage you Come up with your own version of that phrase if you want. Say it a little bit different. But where you in your prayer life learn to thank God as you're confessing sin and, and receiving forgiveness of sin to add that clarity of truth, that clarity of agreement with this doctrine in Colossians 2. Father, I want to thank you that I'm forgiven because this sin is not on my account. This sin was transferred to Jesus at the cross. And you dealt with it perfectly and completely there. Now, he also says it was taken away. So here's another just a beautiful addition. Not only does that account, not only is that sin not on my account, when it was placed on Jesus' account, it was dealt with and it's gone. My sin account does not exist in the universe. My sin account does not exist in this universe. That I could sit down with God and one day... I expect something like this will occur. I could sit down with God and we could talk about His work and His grace through my life. And as we're talking about His work and grace through my life, we're going to bump into the facts and the, and the historical realities of my sin. But there won't be a sudden moment of shame. There won't be a sudden moment of turning my eyes away from God as we review those facts of history. Because God and I will then be in perfect agreement that we're talking about a fact of history. We're not talking about an indictment against a guilty person. It's just a fact of history now, and we never have to deny those facts. Scripture tells us the facts of Peter's sin. I don't know how often Peter went to churches and go, hey guys, have you you read uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John yet? Yeah, I come off looking pretty good, don't I? No, he didn't. Those facts are in there because they do not condemn Peter. And, and Paul had the facts that he had sought to kill and imprison Christians, and everywhere he went, that history followed him. Memorize everything I've already written. Um, We'll come back to it. But I want to go to the passage uh, that Patty read for us. So if you can go to First Thessalonians 5. Because he adds an idea to this that I think, again, matters to what we're talking about. Starting in verse 8, 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. So when he's telling us about our destiny again, that in this salvation, we're getting the revelation of our destiny. We're not destined for wrath. We're destined to live with him because of our faith in his death. But I, I like the phrasing here. So we have in Ephesians 6, we have put on the helmet of salvation. But I hope you noticed a little word difference here. He says here, put on the helmet The hope of salvation. And many of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with this. When the New, New Testament uses the word hope for the things that God has promised, it's not a wishing hope. Boy, I sure hope that happens. It is a confident certainty that has not yet been fulfilled. It is an absolute unbreakable certainty, but its final fulfilling is ahead of me. And so that recognition that if I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, I am already eternal. If I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, I am already forgiven. If I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, I am already clean and holy. But God constantly lays this out before us. But there's a whole lot more coming because of your faith. One of the things that Stephen said in Sunday school this morning, I I don't know if I've never heard it, but if I have heard it, I'd forgotten it and he was sort of putting this twist on it, that this life on planet earth, even with God's help, God's blessing, uh, even with the certainty of his care and his deliverance and his provision, that everything we go through here has some measure of sorrow, some measure of pain, some measure of disappointment. And the recognition that this life right now here on planet earth this is the worst it's going to get for believers. Because it's absolutely going to get better. But for a non-believer who has rejected Jesus Christ, who faces that eternity in hell, this miserable planet is the best it's ever going to be for them. And and our wisdom would be I want it to keep getting better. I just want to be wise enough to keep choosing that my eternity is better than this life. And he's saying, hope for that. Put your, your joyful anticipation, and Romans 8 says it the same way, that we anticipate what's coming. We look forward to it. Paul said it would be better to be with the Lord than to be here. But he says, but you know what? I have a calling and I have a purpose, so I'm going to joyfully continue my purpose here on the planet. He wasn't suicidal. He was wise. He could recognize that life will be infinitely better than this life, but I have a purpose here, so I'm going to stay and joyfully do my purpose. And you and I get to keep building that that mindset. We were talking in Sunday school, the recognition that we not tie our sense of security and identity to stuff that can be taken away. Um, The healthiest, strongest human being will one day be a, uh, a gnarly old walnut sitting on their rocking chair on the front porch. <laughs> that The most beautiful young man or young woman will one day be a prune drying in the sun. I'm giving you beautiful pictures of anticipating <laughs> your future. <laughs> on planet Earth. I know I've said this before, but there are so many times when Carrie, you know, I don't know what, Carrie, Carrie and... I, sometimes Aaron, will be sitting there and then we all get up from sitting there after two or three hours talking or visiting or watching, and we all get up and we're like, oh, oh, oh. I look forward to the day when that's not happening anymore. But that's not my biggest sorrow. My biggest sorrow is when I see sin in me. That's my actually my biggest sorrow. And what he's saying is, there will be a day when you are perfectly cleansed purified and finished. I will do it. God, not Reg. I will finish you. And in fact, he says in 1 John chapter 3, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we will become like him because we'll see him as he really is. That's the destiny that he has for you. And he actually says, please think about this more and more and more. Let this be the covering for your thoughts that, again, don't forget what we're talking about, that protects you from the attacks and accusations of the enemy. The enemy will seek to discourage you, and you will be better prepared to defeat those discouragements, whether whether they're about disease and illness and injury or money Whether they're about loss, whether they're about grief, whether they're about death, whatever your sorrows, whatever your loss is, that you remember, wait a minute, this planet is not my final destiny. My sinfulness, my unfinished, even if I'm growing in the lordship of Jesus Christ, my unfinished state is not the final description of my destiny. That I am destined to be like him and I'm destined to live with him for eternity. And we get to choose that destiny very simply by choosing Jesus Christ. Now, again, I'm presuming that that the vast majority of people sitting in the room have already put their faith in Jesus Christ. But going over this salvation, it's always worth saying this. If you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ, this is not about religion, this is not about a particular church, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. I hope these promises from Scripture has started stirring up a hunger in you to say, I want that destiny. I want that love relationship with God so that I don't fear God. I get to enjoy loving God because I've come to believe that He loved me enough to send His Son to die for my sin. If if your heart is at all inclined in that, then I would encourage you This is about a simple agreement with God. This is not about a formula. This is not about saying it the right way. This is about making a heart choice of, Father, I believe that your son came to earth to die for my sins, and I trust that death for forgiveness. Please forgive me for my sins, and please come be Lord of my life and help me grow. That's a simple prayer. You can say it 5,000 different ways. But that those truths are in the saying. Those truths are in the choosing of the heart. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you that what you offer us is real. What you offer us is powerful. And Father, what you offer us is motivated by perfect love. Father, you've also said in your word that perfect love casts out fear. We don't have to be afraid of you once we have said yes to your perfect love. That then you're no longer the judge that we would hide from. As we already sang, you become the Father that's good for us. Good to us. And does good on our behalf in a multitude of ways. Father, I do pray that your Spirit would be working in each of our hearts. In my heart, in each of our hearts. That if we have already put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we would go deeper in learning these truths, in anchoring these truths in our thinking, in our assumptions. Father, so that when we get knocked around by life, when we get accused and attacked by the enemy, that more and more and more our, our trained, thought through, pondered, prepared, and meditated on response to that moment would be to put on the helmet of salvation. That we agree with the truths that anchor our security and our destiny. That we have an eternity that is rock solid. And not because we earned it, but your Son earned it for us. And Father, help us to remember this that everything you're working on is in love. Your heart's desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Your heart's desires that all men would be saved. And Father, you've said these things so that we would know your heart and then we'd ally ourselves with your heart for ourselves and then for others. Father, thank you for being our Father now. Thank you that you have a tender heart toward us. You see the struggles we're in. You see the moments of weakness. Father, you see the heartaches that, that, that wear us down and bring us grief. And it matters to you that we're going through these things. So you call yourself the God of all comfort. So, Father, we have so many people in our congregation struggling with different sorrows, different griefs, different challenges. Thank you that we're now in a father-son, father-daughter love relationship with you. That now, without fear, we can run to you for comfort. Thank you for these things, Father, in Jesus' name.